Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Joshua Dubler and Vincent Lloyd. Joshua Dubler is Assistant Professor of Religion at the University of Rochester. Vincent Lloyd is Associate Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at Villanova University. They both are the co-authors of the book, Break Every Yoke, Religion, Justice, and the Abolition of Prisons. You can get connected with Joshua and Vincent and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Vincent Lloyd with me and Joshua Dubler. Uh, Vincent, you are a professor at Villanova University, and Joshua, you are a professor at University of Rochester, and you both co-wrote. I feel like this is the only way a book about abolition should be written, is it should be collaborative, right? You both co-wrote a book called Break Every Yoke, Religion, Justice, and the Abolition of Prisons. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, I know for a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast, they may have heard of prison and police abolition, but aren't exactly sure what that all means and um, are really trying to get a better understanding of it. And so I'm really hopeful that this conversation will just be one uh, way for a person to be introduced to some of these important ideas. But with all of that said, who is Vincent Lloyd to Vincent Lloyd? And then who is Joshua Doubler to Joshua Doubler? So uh, whoever wants to take a crack at that first, uh, feel free. Thanks. Thanks so much for having having us on the the podcast and looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Yeah, so I I live here in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, in in West Philly. Uh, I've been here for about uh, six and a half years now. Uh, I'm originally from the Midwest. uh, And... Uh, when I was an undergraduate student, I got very involved in uh, campus labor organizing uh, and uh, started to see how religious imagination and religious practice and religious commitment was really essential to animating that kind of uh, labor organizing that, that we were doing collaboratively between students, uh, low-wage workers, uh, and community partners uh, around my my college campus, uh, and from there I, I've been uh, trying to delve both into the the world of uh, religious ideas and particularly Christian ethics uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, trying to to see how uh, social movements can be enhanced by uh, enhanced and enriched by engaging deeply with uh, religious uh, ideas, practices, and and uh, commitments. Uh, so I'm really fortunate to be able to teaching in an institution here uh, at Villanova where uh, those sorts of connections between religion and commitment in the world to social justice are are celebrated uh, and the, the work like this uh, project on prison abolition uh, could be could be nurtured uh, by, by colleagues and, and students um, so yeah wonderful thank you and uh, Joshua Dubler who is Joshua Dubler to Joshua Dubler well, Joshua Dubler to Joshua Dubler is Joshua Dubler. Oh, but, uh, first foremost, and secondarily, let's see. I live in Rochester, New York. Uh, I have uh, uh, a life partner and two children and too many pets. <laughs> I come from a Jewish background that I think informs my work in ways that I both understand and don't understand. Mm. I was born in 1974, came of age during the precise period when uh, mass incarceration was congealing. Um, And I have, um, for the last 25 years, been engaging in various ways with those issues. Uh, Formatively, uh, well, I I, I met uh, Vincent when he was an undergrad and I was a grad student at Princeton. And for my dissertation work at Princeton, I did an ethnographic project in the prison chapel of Graterford Prison, where I um, had uh, 
where I cultivated a number of relationships with people who really impacted my life, uh, many of whom uh, are still incarcerated. There's no uh, parole for people who are sentenced to life in the state of Pennsylvania. And mm. so uh, a lot of my work is is uh, maybe tr- like um, born in those relationships and those obligations. So um, at the University of Rochester, I've founded and direct uh, something called the Rochester Education Justice Initiative that fosters uh, higher educational opportunities for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. Oh, wow. um, I wrote this book with Vincent and uh, uh, yeah, are tr- trying it in our little corner of, of the world to uh, to contribute to uh, to the movement to uh, significantly reduce the footprint that human caging has in our culture and society. Mm. Love it. And, you know, I feel like it would be remiss of me not to mention how cool the book cover is. I remember the first time I ever uh, saw the book cover, I was like, you know what? This is amazing. Uh, I don't even know exactly what all of this is, uh, you know, what's all inside of it. But the book cover alone sells me. So if nothing else there's the, to read the book, if there's no other reason to read the book, just get it because the book cover is amazing. So actually, this is my colleague, Eitan Friedenberg at the Rochester Education Justice Initiative. He designed the cover. And so uh, cool. it, it's a kind of abstraction of this um, of this statue of uh, of Isaiah, uh, the Isaiah image of turning uh, swords into plowshares by this Soviet sculptor. Wow. So that's cool. at the U.N. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I just finished my thesis, and because of that, there were so many different things when I was doing like research and writing the the, the thesis that was completely new to me. I like I learned something factually or learned something theologically that I'm like I had no idea about that before. I'm curious about that for you for you all as you started to write the book. Is there anything? Now I understand you both have PhDs. You're both professors. Uh, you both have studied this kind of work for a while, so there might not have been too much new uh, that popped up in the writing of the book. But was there anything new that came up uh, as you were researching or writing the book that you just had no idea? Maybe it was about mass incarceration. Maybe it was around uh, theology or religion and mass incarceration, anything around uh, that that just was totally new to you as you wrote the book? I think there were a couple of hunches that animated the project. And one is that abolitionism is, uh, among other things, a, a in this country, a kind of a, a tradition, a stance, and that there that the essentially like the the role of religion in 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 the contemporary movement of prison abolition had yet to be written that there was going to be stuff there that was really interesting and valuable. Mm -hmm. And uh, that hunch bore out. Um, The other hunch we had, right, was that uh, prison abolition as a movement comes from fairly secularist places in aggregate um, and perhaps a kind of Marxist or Marxist adjacent black radical stance that in some, in some ways that we uh, share is, is a, is suspicious of of religious institutions and suspicious mm. of religious traditions, but that that if this if this movement was going to really grow and have a chance at winning, that uh, it it was going to need to be able to speak religious languages the way that the great movements for justice in this country have been able to speak religious languages. And even then, in the time that we were writing the book, uh, it seemed like a lot of other folks were making that same connection. Um, and so you started to have a lot more. Um, religiously inflected prison abolitionist practices and actions on the ground that is kind of was kind of coming into uh, into its own uh, as we were researching the book. So uh, that's what how I would answer that question. What about you, Vincent? Sure, just a, a couple uh, more specific things that that struck me. One uh, was about the origins of restorative justice or transformative justice. Uh, very much in the air these days uh, is the uh, restorative justice as a framework for addressing harms that uh, is not punitive, it does not rely on the the state uh, and and the uh, apparatus of policing and prisons. Uh, but wh- where did that come from? Diving into to the, those multiple origin stories, uh, both uh, in um, uh, religious communities uh, and uh, including uh, Mennonites and Quakers and and other Christian communities that were experimenting uh, in the in the 1970s with uh, ways of 
reweaving the social fabric, uh, reweaving the community relationships uh, after harm had been done, uh, you know, seeing those experiments and seeing how they developed and were codified over over the last few decades and uh, came together with folks drawing on indigenous traditions, uh, folks drawing on uh, experiments around the world in Australia and New Zealand and uh, Canada and elsewhere uh, to become, uh, you know, th this uh, uh, package of restorative justice practices that, that we uh, uh, are becoming increasingly familiar with uh, now, particularly as uh, grassroots uh, communities are, are, are trying to uh, think beyond the prison or think uh, uh, concrete alternatives to the prison. So th that origin story was is one surprise. Another surprise was how this conversation about the prison being a problem instead of a solution to, to problems, we think of as a very recent story. We think of it as a story that you know, uh, Michelle Alexander, the last 10 years, um, really started. But mm. noticing that there was a conversation like this happening in the 1960s uh, in early 70s as well, right? that there were a dozen Michelle Alexanders with these big books that everyone was talking about around the country, saying that the prison uh, is perverse, right? It's making uh, uh, things worse. It's taking those who need to be loved, those who need to be in deep relationship with others uh, to, to flourish and severing those relationships. Uh, and, and so uh, compounding harms rather than, than solving harms. Uh, so th that there was a, a national discussion about, about the prison, about the end of the prison that was happening in Congress when we have uh, a couple of Congress people who uh, spent time in prisons to see what it was really like and it came out basically prison abolitionists. It was happening in, uh, in courts where judges were saying this institution of the prison doesn't have a future. Uh, it was happening all over, you know, in think tanks and, uh, and in religious communities as well. Uh, yeah, so th that, you know, th this discussion we feel is so new actually has no, uh, had an, um, a prehistory was also very surprising and striking. Yeah, you both have alluded to this, and it kind of uh, segues right into my next question. But you both have alluded to the fact that religion has played some sort of role in mass incarceration. Certainly, like you mentioned before, some of the Mennonites and Quakers have, have been thinking about restorative justice for several decades now. But with that said, mass incarceration is specifically a Christian problem, that there is a, a Christianity that has animated the development of mass incarceration as we know it today. So can you talk a little bit about some of that uh, history of how Christianity in particular has created this mass incarceration problem that we currently are experiencing today? Um, you know, I, I think this is a less uh, some kind of polemic against uh, the Christian tradition as such and more a kind of a historical ethnographic uh, observation about about who we are as a country and about uh, the relationship between secular modernity and certain kinds of uh, Christian ideas that become secularized. So the story about the history of the prisons, particularly from uh, of the emergence of of the pris of prisons as how we manage uh, deviance and affect public safety and so on, you know the standard account that circulated in the in the nineteen seventies period um, that Vincent's talking about, which 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 turned out to be you know surprisingly that there was a lot of abolitionism like in in the air. Um, the story that's told is was a is a religious story. Right. That the the emergence mm. of and this is a story that rhymes with people have read Foucault's Discipline and Punish. It's an American version, but uh, of the emergence of the penitentiary. Right. The penitentiary is this religious concept uh, that that emerges with, uh, uh, you know, with 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 in Philadelphia, with with the Quakers and their fellow travelers and this kind of notion of rehabilitation that relies on a liberal Protestant notion of the kind of fundamental goodness of people and and relies on a kind of environmental theory of 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 criminality that people have fallen with the wrong crowd and that through penitence and and separation and prayer and work of course uh kind of uh, people's goodness can be restored and that was a story that was told in the 70s and uh there's been really good revisionist history that um uh that let's say relativizes that story that story is true uh, and that is a a kind of uh, a a religious inspiration of of 
modern incarceration and and it and it returns as a light motif uh and when we think about um human caging and how it might be leveraged in the direction of of repairing or re or rehabilitating people but it's really kind of a blip because the dominant uh theological mood that it that informs what what becomes standardized as American incarceration isn't the Philadelphia model, so-called that kind of liberal model. It's it's a it's a it's a, it's an intersection of this emergent prison administration and Second Great Awakening evangelicalism mm. uh, up at Auburn Prison that becomes the model. And this is I would refer you to a, a sensational book, Jen Graber's book, The Furnace of Affliction. Right. Which uh, they're drawing on. Uh, if so, if, if our title indexes uh, one uh, phrase from the book of Isaiah, that's been important to folks who've been uh, uh, thinking about um, about freedom in, in an abolitionist tradition in the United States. Uh, her book refers to this kind of this civil theology that informs the Auburn uh, prison discipline. Um, which, you know, they're in the furnace of affliction uh, um, for people who are bad. And um, this can be people who've done bad things or in a sort of more mean spirited Calvinist vein, people who are just born bad. Suffering is edifying. Mm. And if we uh, take folks who have done bad things or are bad and we cause them to suffer, we're doing them a favor. And uh, and I think that's a really enduring sensibility. Um uh, throughout the history of American incarceration. Wow. So that's that's the long kind of prehistory. Vincent, do you want to talk about mass incarceration? Sure, just to add a little bit, to step back a minute, it, it, does, uh, it, it does seem helpful to, to remember we're talking about two separate things, right? The prison as such. Uh, and we can make claims about the prison as such as a problem, right? That caging humans is a moral abomination. That uh, seems like an important claim to make and to, to think about and to think about the Sort of uh, Christian connections on both sides of that, uh, and then mass incarceration, uh, a phenomenon of the last half century, mm. uh, where the U.S. prison population exploded. Right, there's exponential growth. The U.S. Pro po prison population moves from being in the same, uh, more or less similar to to other uh, to to European countries, and becomes you know, orders of magnitude um, greater than. Uh, uh, European countries and uh, yeah. every other country around the world. Uh, so, uh, and there are there may be distinctive uh, causes and responses to mass incarceration to, to think about separate from incarceration as such, right? So, thinking now about mass incarceration in particular and, and what was going on in the 1960s and 70s, right? The, the prison population throughout through the 70s really starts that 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 curve uh, starts to move from a, a slow increase to an exponential growth. Uh, in terms of the rate of incarceration, uh, yeah, it, it seems important to, to think about how the U.S., the way that religious language informs the U.S. politics and self-understanding uh, is transforming uh, in, in that period. So the, the kind of idiom that we're familiar with from Martin Luther King in the 50s uh, and early 60s, uh, that is of um, a sense of God's justice of uh, America needing to bend its laws in the direction of justice, uh, a sense of uh, the uh, kingdom of God on earth, that, that if only we reform uh, our social structures and uh, practices in the right ways, we can move closer to, to realizing uh, something like that. Uh, you know, those, those, uh, that kind of language, that kind of particularly Christian language, uh, is very much uh, was very much informing uh, the uh, U.S. public discourse up until right, uh, 1960s and uh, uh, early 1970s. Then justice starts to mean something quite different. Right, justice starts to mean getting even. Uh, mm -hmm. Justice starts to mean in the international realm. If someone uh, hits the U.S., the U.S. is going to hit back, and that will be justice. In, in the realm of crime, right, justice gets flattened to being the criminal justice system, right? It's the proper operation of uh, the prosecutor, the judge, the court system, the police, the, the prison. If all that operates smoothly, then justice is done. The, the, the meaning of justice changes really dramatically, right? From that uh, broader, richer, deeper, and quite Christian connotation of justice in the first half of the, the 20th century to this much flatter sense of justice in in the the last decades of the 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 20th century 
And when justice is flattened in that way, when a community experiences harm, it seems like the, the only proper thing to do is respond with policing, respond with, with jailing, respond with the, the court system. There's no vision of transforming ourselves and our communities in the direction of goodness, truth, and beauty, right, that, that, that circulates uh, any longer. And, and so the, the state institutions become uh, the, the only uh, apparent response. One could sort of get deeper into how that fits with decline of mainline Protestantism, rise of evangelicalism, and how other religious communities are, are responding. But I mean, maybe that's a sort of short version of how we start thinking about those religious, religious changes and the rise of mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. And so obviously Christianity has played a part of the, the problem that is prisons and mass incarceration. And before we jump into uh, – because I want to ask a question eventually about how Christians can be a part of actually abolishing prisons and obviously mass incarceration. Before I do that though, I think one really important distinction – and sometimes I hear this debate happen all the time, especially now now that this conversation seems to be part of uh, the kind of more broader conversation, uh, um, especially after George Floyd was killed and you hear this conversation around um, policing and all of that as well. But one of the one of the key distinctions I hear all the time in this debate going on all the time is the difference between prison abolition and prison reform. And so I'm really curious about like how you two think about the difference between those two and why that difference matters. Um, Because obviously you both are making very much a claim that we should be abolishing prisons, not reforming them. So can you talk a little bit about why that distinction matters and what the difference between the two are? I love uh, abolition as a framework. Uh, I find it animating and inspiring and it draws on some of the most uh powerful resources in 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 the in in our country's history or the history of justice and freedom movements and modernity and it's elastic and it's dynamic and it's it's a stance we write about abolitionism as a stance a no and abolitionism is a horizon uh, abolitionism can be a lot of different things. One of the the things that I think really um, from a from a I think there are a lot of pragmatic reasons to be an abolitionist. Um, and one of them is simply uh, in how to navigate this question. Right. Because there's a, a sort of straw man, you know, um, the gatekeepers of discourse uh, who whose job is primarily to make uh, to try to make you think that a better world isn't possible. Uh, you know, they they want to straw man abolitionism as this pie in the sky thing that's unrealistic, mm. that rejects change, that rejects marginal uh, the possibility of marginal reforms and so on. And, and and I think that one of the best arguments for abolitionism is precisely uh, at the margin of the present in thinking about reforms, right? Which is to say, okay, if we're going to look to moderately uh, adjust the system we have, what sorts of moderate changes do we want to have? And this is where you find real splits between self-described abolitionists and self-described prison reformers. Not that the mm-hmm. abolitionists are hostile to incremental change. Abolitionists are hostile to dumb incremental change, bad incremental change, bad faith incremental change, uh, which mm-hmm. has been the model of change throughout the, the history of mass incarceration, which is, um, and these are, uh, uh, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, uh, Marie Gottschalk, Mariam Kaba are all really deft about talking about this, that that the the um, the system, the systems we have of policing and punishment have been exceedingly deft at absorbing critiques in order to shore up their legitimacy and grow. So one of the key effects of the of of prisoners' rights legislation around prison conditions in the 1970s that's grouped, you know, under the prisoners' rights movement uh, is a, a wave of new prison building that takes place in the 80s and 90s, largely beginning in California and New York under Democratic governors. Right. Mm. So, oh, no, these prisons are unconstitutionally crowded and unsafe. Let's build all these new, better prisons. Right. Mm. Or let's uh, let's fight the death penalty by expanding um, uh, the life in prison without parole. And so 
during the period of mass incarceration, not only do you have all these people on death row, but suddenly you have thousands and thousands of, of people in American prison serving life without the possibility of parole. Those are what we would, what abolitionists would call uh, reformist reforms. Mm. And this is a distinction I get from Mariam Kaba, um, reformist reforms, right? Reformist reforms are again, the, the bad reforms from an abolitionist standpoint, which is just reforms that are going to get more money for the police, more money for prisons, result in more people living under surveillance, more people under state control. Uh, whereas what abolitionists want to push for, and this is, you know, uh, this is right there in, you know, in, in, in Angela Davis's Are Prisons Obsolete, which everyone should pick up. It's a short read. It'll change your life. Is what abolitionists want to do is shrink the footprint. Right. Uh, we right now, uh, if we were serious about public health, if we were serious about public safety, if we were serious about preventing harms, if we were serious about remediating harms, if we were serious about healing, there would be a lot of different kinds of institutions we would invest in as a country in order mm. to get in order to try to pursue those goals. We're not serious about those goals in aggregate. Rather, we um, with this kind of sanctified state violence that Vincent was alluding to earlier, we want to invest in this this state violence that is the the hammer that uh, is is there to to hammer whatever nail uh, whatever nail presents itself as a problem. So we want to shrink the footprint. We're not looking to to right now. We have. 2 million people under, uh, you know, in cages, another 7 million people uh, on probation and parole. We're not looking to just have fewer people in cages and more people wearing ankle monitors, uh, right? We're looking to shrink these systems that try to affect justice and healing and public safety through violence and violence work. And we want to invest in alternative institutions that can allow communities and individuals to flourish, right? So mm. that to me is the distinction between uh, prison reform and prison abolition, not do we favor ref do we favor reforms? Yes, of course, we favor reforms. Uh, do we favor smart reforms that'll shrink the footprint of, of violence work? Or are we going to further invest in, in violence work that takes communities that have historically been bludgeoned and further bludgeons them? Mm. And just to add on uh, to the importance of, of this uh, distinction for Christian communities, uh, there can be, uh, uh, there is a deep tendency among Christian communities uh, to see reform as the only option for pursuing justice, right? That the, the Social Justice Committee looks for, uh, to see what reforms they can make to the, the city or the state or the national laws uh, or sort of social institutions in order to make the world better. It's been very helpful in the last few years that now that the prison is named as a problem, the conversation is framed as a choice between this reformist framework and an abolitionist framework. Uh, and I, I think it, it, we're really at a moment where Christian churches have the opportunity to catch up, right? And, and realize that the the framework that they've been so comfortable with for years, right? Since these early prisons that Josh was talking about, Eastern State Penitentiary, Auburn, right? These models for for the prison around the U.S. and around the world you know, were the products of Christian reformers, right? That that reformist framework has has been uh, so much in place in, in the Christian world for uh, the last couple of centuries. Uh, we we're at a moment where there's an opportunity to say that that's not the only framework. Let's think about these two frameworks and, and let's see whether the uh, Christian tradition, uh, Christian values, Christian uh, practice and, and, and faith uh, might actually be better aligned with this abolitionist framework that identifies moral abominations and says no uh, and takes that as a starting point. So kind of along those lines then, Vincent, you've talked then about how the, the sort of theology of Christianity or of certain Christians has animated the development of the prison and then obviously eventually mass incarceration. What then would you suggest should be the theology that animates the abolition of prisons um, for Christians? What, what do you think that theology should be? I know you talk a little bit about this uh, in the book, but I'm really curious, like, OK, certainly theology has animated uh, the creation of the problem. But certainly there needs to be a type of theology that um, can animate the solution uh, to this problem that is prison. So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about uh, the theology th that should uh, form 
Christians so that they um, are motivated and um, be a part of the abolition of prisons? Sure. Uh, and and uh, I think there are other, um, we're at a moment where there are many uh, scholars and practitioners who are doing really exciting work uh, along these lines. I'll just name one. My co colleague here at Villanova, Catherine Gedek-Solotis, uh, writes really wonderfully, uh, richly engaging with Christian social ethics uh, and the meaning of justice uh, and the, the uh, form of the prison. But uh, to provide one, one point of entry into this conversation myself, uh, we might notice that um, there's a, an ambivalence between two strands in Christian ethical thought, not just in the scholarly realm, but uh, in uh, you know the sort of everyday realm, in families, in, in church communities, and so on. Right? One uh, is uh, about naming sins, naming uh, prom problems that have uh, uh, occurred, and punishing them. Right, mm. uh, responding to them uh, with uh, in a kind of legalistic uh, sort of way. Uh, this uh, sin was committed. Th this response um, needs to to follow. Uh, another framework that that um, is also part of that Christian moral tradition uh, is one of formation. Right, one of being uh, one's character being uh, shaped in community right? by exemplary figures. Uh, sometimes in one's family, sometimes in one's neighborhood, sometimes, uh, you know, leaders in one's church group, uh, sometimes by the saints, sometimes by, you know, uh, other revered figures. Uh, and uh, the possibility that if one is uh, well-formed, one will naturally make the right choices, right? One will naturally mm -hmm. uh, sort of live a, a good life uh, and, and a, a flourishing life. Uh, and when problems are occurring, when, when we're seeing uh, harms, now, what what we need to do is deepen the relationships, deepen the sense of community, de deepen uh, the 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 love in which uh, you know individuals are surrounded, uh, uh, and, and that will uh, deepen that process of formation that that can orient uh, orient us uh, toward the the good, uh, the true, and the beautiful. So uh, I think recovering that latter ethical tradition, right, uh, within Christianity and. Thing. You know, what, what does it mean when um, we're we're taking that as the default within our own communities? Because there are carceral tendencies within uh, Christian communities, within families, within classrooms, mm -hmm. as well as at the state level. But what if we take the, this sort of sense of uh, of uh, formation as, as a default at all of these levels, including at the state level, where one experiences harm that the default is not naming the crime in the law book and uh, Menning out the the, the uh, prescribed penalty uh, or punishment uh, in terms of years in prison, uh, but instead uh, figuring out you know what relationships have been severed, what relationships need to be rebuilt, what forms of community need to 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 uh, be uh, built up around around that individual in in order to to uh, rightly orient them toward the the good, the true, and the beautiful. So th that's just one sort of starting point there. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll let Vincent speak to the to the Christian tradition. My preoccupation is more with uh, my Jewish community, right? Mm. And uh, you know, these are robust these are robust traditions that that have in them wonderful resources toward liberation, but uh, are also not um, immune to the temptations of of a certain kind of Constantinian turn in which in which the tradition and the communities that practice the traditions become committed to shoring up uh, uh, relationships of domination, mm. right? So I think this is a matter for anyone who's in any community. Um, there's nothing inherently, uh, you know, th these are potent traditions. These are animating traditions. Uh, they can be used to apologize for domination, or they can be leveraged against domination. And I think it's uh, for all of us in our communities, uh, the, the task for probably any moment, but certainly this historical moment, and as much as it's ours, and we're in a period of crisis, and probably um, the habitability of the planet for human beings is at stake, is to try to mine these traditions for their justice, uh, loving, liberation, furnishing uh, potential, um, mm. and for their resources of of trying to push toward care. Uh, so that's what we all are trying to do, right? 
Mm, mm. In my tradition, we would say that will preach. That'll preach. That that that's beautiful. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So I can imagine right now a lot of the, the listeners are thinking to themselves, okay, this all sounds great. Prison abolition, all for it. But they're wondering, what can I do in my community or context to actually be a part of this? So are there really any practical things that uh, or, or things that a listener right now can be done listening to this podcast and go out and start participating in some way, shape or form in the abolition of prison? So are there any things that come to mind right away for you uh, to that you would encourage listeners to go out, go, you know, go right now and, and be a part of this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're I mean, I'm glad we got the book out when we did and and we and we published it in what I mean, under the Trump years, but which were, uh, let's say, were a bit more seemed, I think people were a little more optimistic around these issues than, than the kind of uh, backlash reactionary turn that has happened uh, since the, the George Floyd summer. Um, but I would think there's so much to do. Um, and there's so much going on. Um, I, I don't think, as Vincent said, um, the, the abolitionist stance is, uh, it doesn't want to cede the totality of the horizon to electoralism or to mm. uh, legislative pushes. Uh, however, um, we are in an era of coalition building in in local state houses across the country. I mean, in obvious places like like New York and California, but uh, uh, in surprising places like Louisiana, where people are pushing for legal and administrative changes to uh, shrink uh, the footprint of, of, the, of the prison system. There are places where you have, you know, abolitionists sometimes don't want to be involved with this at all, but maybe in your county, there's someone running as like a progressive prosecutor. And maybe that's fake. Maybe that's just a rhetoric and it they're, they're not there isn't actually the political force to try to reduce the number of people who are in cages but maybe mm. it's not fake and like you do have some uh prosecutors who are trying to uh uh really move away from default human caging this is all very contested terrain and the forces of uh, of you know of law enforcement um you know stigmatizing these kind of bail reforms that were passed in New York and elsewhere around uh you know a few years ago th th those forces are really powerful so you got to fight those forces mm -hmm. so anyway i think that at the uh i'm very pessimistic about electoralism at a federal at a national level but i think uh coalition building and political campaigns at the county level at the city level uh and at the state level whether it's abolitionist pushes to to limit the use of solitary confinement to limit the use of cash bail, which essentially incarcerates people simply because they're poor, you know, that there's um, that there you should educate yourself about what's happening in your community. And probably a lot of your listeners are aware of these pushes in their community. They can be part of these pushes. The other thing that uh, has like even in the time since we've written the book, there's a um, I don't know whether it's like 
the sometimes it feels to me like acquiescence to a kind of neoliberalism to give up on the existing systems but other times it really feels like there's much there's so much power in the kind of abolitionist ethos of um who cares about the state or like we know what the mm. state is the state is going to be uh used by uh the class that uh that owns things to dominate people you know let's do it ourselves we could do it ourselves and that taps into uh you know i think a christian spirit it, it taps into an american lowercase r republican spirit and so you have a lot as something that probably a lot of your listeners were aware of particularly george floyd summer is this turn to mutual aid mm. right um and which is to say you know we're not going to be looking to the state like we don't know we know that the state isn't coming to save us we need to build up alternative institutions in our community to care for people who need care, who might be precarious, who might need supports, who might need access to certain kinds of medical care that are pro that are suddenly illegal in their states, that, that there's a lot of energy around those kind of things. If if abolitionism, you know, I, I don't think any of us personally, neither personally, nor as a as a country, nor as a species, I think are we, is it in our interest to succumb to cynicism and to give up hope? And yet some of the rotten, uh, the rotten institutions, in the United States have, have lost their legitimacy for a reason. And I feel as though the most impact we can have and the most we can nourish our own souls is to dig in locally in our own community, mm. in our towns, in our counties, in our states, in kind of formal institutional channels and by uh, creating new organizations or working in our church or, or in our synagogue to, to try to, uh, uh, care for people, maybe to try to build alternative institutions where, or or to build practices where um, we can try to respond to harms in our own community in, in ways that look toward healing and reconciliation rather than looking toward punishment and exclusion. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, just uh, uh, those are a great, uh, I think that, that turn um, away from the state, but also thinking in complex ways about the state at at local uh, local levels is really important. To add to that, uh, from the particularly Christian uh, perspective, uh, one of the people we uh, interviewed uh, and discussed in the book is uh, Jason Leiden, a, a Unitarian minister and and, uh, and formerly incarcerated man in the Chicago area, uh, who tells some really compelling stories about what it means to uh, include incarcerated folks in church membership. Uh, mm -hmm. And to invite a, a church community into a uh, relationship with those incarcerated through correspondence, uh, through visits, uh, and how it makes uh, Christians think differently about the center of their community when those who are incarcerated nearby are are also members of that, that community, uh, how it makes us articulate our values in new ways when those incarcerated are among us rather than those out there uh, who we're concerned about. So uh, I think there are exciting experiments happening along those lines. Uh, and that uh, this is, again, where abolitionism is about more than just a rhetorical stance of condemnation, right? But the, the sort of uh, relationship building and mm. resourcing uh, of those who are incarcerated, so that those who are most affected by a problem can be the leaders in the uh, solving that problem. Those who are incarcerated can be the the leaders in the movement to end incarceration. What is what what, what is a kind of uh, resource sharing that 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 those uh, outside prison walls can do uh, in order to catalyze that, in order to to support support that. Uh, I know the, the kind of work that Josh is, is doing in, in terms of prison education uh, is uh, really uh, both crucial in uh, building capacity uh, uh, among those incarcerated, but also in transforming those, and particularly those religious folks who are crossing the threshold of the prison for the first time and seeing what it means, and not just to see a prison on a television show, but to spend hours uh, in conversation with uh, those incarcerated, uh, the, the kind of moral transformation that happens through that that experience uh, seems really essential in building a, a sustainable movement for uh, to to end the prison 
I'm so glad that you brought up the actual relationship building, right? Like I mentioned before, I'm a process thinker. So I think we are really formed by our relationships. And to actually build relationships, actual relationships with people who are incarcerated, I think is one of the really core pieces to uh, being a part of this abolition of prisons. And that's certainly something that I've been a part of and I know lots of other people are part of. But actual ha- like building relationships with people who – are currently incarcerated or have been incarcerated, I think is really important. And so there are a lot of organizations out there that uh, you can start writing letters uh, with people who are incarcerated. I I know that's one of, again, many, many different ways to be a part of this. So uh, I'm glad that you all brought up, each one of you brought up lots and lots of different ways, because I think it is a testament to the fact that there isn't just one particular way that everybody needs to be involved uh, in the abolition of prisons. There are so many different ways to be involved. There's so many different uh, types of gifts that we all have, and uh, and each one of those gifts uh, can be a part of this movement, I think. So really, really wonderful uh, ways for people to get involved. Uh, second to last question, how do you hope Break Every Yoke inspires and liberates its readers? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the, this uh, whole series of questions and for for your reflections uh, right there on the, the variety of ways for for listeners to uh, get involved. Yeah, our our hope for the book was to invite readers uh, into their own faith traditions uh, to navigate the complexity of of those traditions and the complicity of those traditions uh, to to. You know, for us to offer examples of the way that Christianity and and other religions have uh, both helped form our current prison system and also have hold the capacity for 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 liberation. Uh, but that that's something that you know we're we're prodding readers to do that themselves rather than doing the work for for the reader. We also hope to we hope to write the book as a series of stories, right? stories of experimentation. Right, stories of experimentation with what liberation means and what abolition means uh, in the present uh, as local communities, as individual prison chaplains, uh, as church groups are experimenting with the practice of liberation uh, and uh, historical stories uh, as different Christian communities are supporting thematizing abolition for the very first time. The International Conference on Prison Abolition was started with the support of dozens of religious communities, uh, from Catholic to Quaker uh, and uh, everything in between. So we hope uh, that readers will realize that just because prison seems like this massive thing that has always been the case now, it wasn't always that way. Uh, And we have the stories in in our past uh, to inspire us to, uh, into the work of of transforming for for a better future. That's a great answer, Vincent. Thank you. I, so I uh, you know writing a book is a funny thing that academics do, and it's a uh, it's a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty funny way to it, it's pretty inefficient as if you're looking for a transformation. This was certainly transformative for Vincent and me, uh, in particular. Uh, the folks that we got to meet, the fellow travelers we got to assemble and kind of and and to begin to build those relationships and those relationships continue into other practices. And so, uh, you know, I would just say it's it's uh, it's thrilling to have this conversation and to um, and to see the book moving through the world and and potentially having an impact. But but also maybe maybe like uh, someone who's listening to this, like you like what we have to say and maybe you want to like you you want us to come and like stage a conversation in your church like you reach out i think vincent and i are both more than uh would be excited to be able to have those conversations and to uh and to help communities wrestle with the kinds of uh the really important questions that you're you're asking mason about about okay so in practice what is it that that we should be doing so yeah, I mean, a book is it's out there in the world, and then we're out here in the world, and we're having this conversation, and and we're all trying together and in pockets to figure out how to survive and how to work to to build a world without prisons. And so yeah, connect to us. And you guys are easy to get connected to because you were really quick on that email when I when I emailed you both. I was like waiting. I was thinking, you know what? Maybe they'll never respond, but if they do, maybe a month from now, you get, like within like a few hours, 
I was like, oh my goodness, you guys are great at emailing. E- email, e- yeah. Emails are responded to uh, quickly or not at all. So I, I try <laughs> to do it quickly. <laughs> I totally get that. Uh, last question for you both. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Google me. I mean, my my work email is joshua.dubler at rochester.edu. It's, uh, you know, uh, you know, writing a book is a funny thing. And uh, uh, it's really thrilling when you hear from people who've had an encounter with it and want to talk about it. So um, if you have the temptation, yeah, don't hesitate to to reach out, as I said. And I'm at uh, vincent.lloyd at villanova.edu. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. And where can people get the book? Where Or where would you encourage people to get their book? Local bookshop. If you ask them to order it, that would be the, that would be uh, the ideal. It seems like there's uh, a kind of resurgence of, of people opening local bookshops. And that's really great to see. There are a bunch of new bookshops in Rochester. So certainly whenever you can route uh, book sales through folks in your own community, you should try to do so. Wonderful. Well, I am so grateful that you both have been a part of, you know, writing this book. Um, I, I think it, especially for somebody, somebody who is coming from a religious tradition as a Christian, uh, and certainly th- this is a book that I think uh, lots of different religious traditions um, can be really um, uh, formed by. But uh, specifically as a Christian, I think this book was is absolutely important. Uh, and as somebody who also really cares about abolition, not of just prisons, but police, uh, and also just living uh, an abolitionist ethic throughout my life, uh, this is such a critical book uh, for, for for somebody who is both animated by their religion, but also uh, by abolition. And so I just thank you so much for seeing that connection between the two and in how, uh, how Christians and other uh, people of other religions can be a part of this uh, really important movement. So thank you so much for being a part of uh, writing it and, and ch- chatting a little bit more about it. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, my, our pleasure. If you would like to connect with Joshua and Vincent and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Thank you.